all of a sudden in my early teens was this splash of color that took place about this emerging civil rights movement going on. I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to the Brown versus Board of Education, but uh, I was, what, six years old, when seven years old when that transpired. So I didn't know it, but my life was about to change. Dr. Owen Cardwell was one of the first African-American students to attend E.C. Glass High School in Lynchburg, Virginia. Today, he's the co-director of the Center for Education and Leadership and a professor at the University of Lynchburg. Welcome to the Teachers in the Movement podcast. Teachers in the Movement is an oral history project that explores teachers' ideas and pedagogy inside and outside the classroom during the U.S. Civil Rights Movement. The Teachers in the Movement podcast is a member of the Virginia Audio Collective. Tune in and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. To watch the full interviews, go to teachersinthemovement.com. I am Dr. Wingfield Smith, and I'm a co-director of the Teachers in the Movement project, and I conducted this oral history with Dr. Cardwell. And I'm Krista McCollum, and I'm a doctoral student here at UVA working on the Teachers in the Movement project. And today we're joined by special guest, Dr. Owen Cardwell, who is here to share a little bit more about his career as an educator and activist. Dr. Cardwell, thanks for joining us. How are you doing today? Uh, Dr. Wingfield Smith, it's a delight to be with you uh, once again. And uh, today is a fabulous day. Great. Thank you for being here. Dr. Cardwell, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your current role at the University of Lynchburg? I grew up uh, here in the city of Lynchburg, and I'm fortunate to have been invited back to a distinguished professor's position here uh, at the university and to be um, co-director of the Center for Education and Leadership. And a lot of the work that we've been doing has, uh, has tied directly to my history as a school desegregator uh, here in the city. We desegregated E.C. Glass High School back on January 29, 1962. So I guess that's been, what, 58 years ago. And um, I don't know that uh, things have appreciably changed in the field of education particularly for African-American males. Uh, so um, some of my work is, uh, is centering around that. Can you tell us a little bit about what life was like growing up in Lynchburg, Virginia? Lynchburg was a fairly genteel town. I would not say that there were necessarily bad relationships between blacks and whites, but it is the South, and it was... Uh, 1940s and 1950s, but then comes this upsetting of the apple cart, so to speak. And uh, I didn't know it, but my life was about to change. Now, what year did you enter uh, the then all-white E.C. Glass High School? And can you remember the first day? January 29th, 1962. A day that shall live on in infamy. <laughs> On that particular day, we came to school after the um, school bell had rung, Linda Woodruff and I, 
We were immediately taken to our homeroom. At that time, Lynchburg had uh, two editions of the newspaper, morning edition and afternoon edition. In the afternoon edition, they showed <laughs> a picture of E.C. Glass and white kids were everywhere. They were hanging out windows, they were standing doors waiting for us to attend. If I had seen that, I might not have gotten out of the car. But by the time we got there, all of that had, had, had dispelled and, and we went on into the classroom. So, yeah, that was the first day. Wow. There were actually four of us that had sued the school system. The truth of the matter is that initially there were 32 persons that had attended a meeting at Diamond Hill Baptist Church under Dr. Wood and offered the opportunity to participate in a class action suit against the school. Many of those uh, families, many of those children that, that initially signed on, economic pressure was applied to their families to withdraw, and most of them depended upon the majority economy, you know, for their livelihood. Brenda Hughes' mother was a waitress in a local restaurant, black-owned restaurant. Cecilia Jackson's father was a dentist. Linda Woodruff's father uh, worked for the Postal Service, but he uh, rode on the train back and forth between Lynchburg and Washington, D.C. And my father was the manager of a black insurance company. So they were not dependent uh, on that economy. And uh, when the uh, courts made the decision to desegregate glass, they, they did something that I consider to be really arbitrary. They, they decided that based on supposed IQ scores that Linda and I could handle going in the middle of a school year. I want you to get it that this was January 29th, the middle of a school year, and that Brenda and Cecilia would come at the beginning of the next school year. But the truth of the matter is, is that all of us had IQ scores that were higher than probably 95% of the kids that we were going to be going to school with. And so uh, Linda and I ended up being the, the first two, but I give Brenda and Cecilia all the credit for, for being part of that it was not their choice. Um, and so I, I consider them to be, you know, as much a part of the desegregation process as us. I know a lot of desegregation efforts were uh, strategized. There was a strategy behind it. So I'm curious to know, why do you think they wanted you and Miss Woodruff to start GLASS in the middle of the school year? You know, I didn't think about that until years later. And I came to understand that that part of that strategy was a design for failure. For example, in a Latin class, we had the same book that they were using at Dunbar. But when we got to glass, we found out that we were like 16 lessons behind. And we ended up having to have our former Latin teacher at, at Dunbar tutor us on Saturdays. That was the first time in my school life that I got a D. You know, I, I just was not able to sufficiently catch up in that class that year. I think Linda did a lot better than, than I did in that class, but, but I struggled. So I think that it was intentional. There were things that were going on in the background that we, we did not discover until years later. Um, but we weren't the first ones to make that attempt. The former mayor, uh, M.W. Thornhill, his son, Merle, we called him Butch, applied to the pupil placement board and was turned down. 
and uh, Christabel Harris's father applied for her to the pupil placement board, and they were turned down. And this pupil placement board is another story in and of itself. The um, General Assembly set up this uh, pupil placement board that were three white gentlemen appointees, and anyone that wanted to apply to transfer from one school to another had to apply to this pupil placement board. Now, ostensibly, even if you went from a school of the same race uh, to another school of the same race, the board had to approve that. But of course, that was a smokescreen. And um, over a, a three or four year period, not a single request for transfer from a school of one race to a school of another race was approved. That was Virginia's way of um, mass, massive resistance of dealing with the uh, Brown versus Board of Education 1954 um, decision. And ultimately in that process, some school systems closed down like Farmville uh, just a few miles down the road from Lynchburg and others, even in Lynchburg, there was a kind of a white flight, and the, that was the beginning of the development of the uh, independent schools that, that are still thriving and um, in communities, even in Lynchburg. Now, you mentioned that many students were prevented from attending Glass because of the threat of retribution from their white employers. So my question is, were you and Ms. Woodruff concerned about violence or other families concerned about violence? Was that an issue or a fear? We, we were. Um, this was uncharted territory for us in Lynchburg. And of course, we had seen on television and uh, had heard about violence taking place in, in other cities. Uh, Danville, just 50 minutes or so down the road, had had uh, pretty violent um, responses to sit-in demonstrations. So, so we were aware that violence was, a, was a, a real possibility. However, and I didn't find this out until much later, that there were actually people who had gotten together, people in houses along our walking route that, that looked out for us as kind of monitors that were praying for us. So while we had a concern uh, in the back of our minds about violence, we came to find out that we were pretty pretty well protected uh, in the process. Can you describe to us your schooling experience at Dunbar before arriving at EC Glass? Well, I was tops in my class all the way through middle year of the ninth grade. And in the seventh grade, my teacher, Ms. Vasca Harris, had told us that the city was about to give um, a test to see if kids that were about to go to Dunbar could do advanced algebra. And so she wanted to make sure that we did well on the test. And she had her son to come in and start kind of giving us lessons around algebra, getting the highest mark on that algebra test. And so going into Dunbar, I was in this accelerated group of roughly about 30 kids. So that was, that was the way things were going at Dunbar. Um, we used to have house parties and those kinds of things. And uh, so my house was one of the places where people would come. So I, I would say I was having a pretty normal um, preteen, early teen experience 
fairly popular, so that was the way things were. Mm -hmm. And Dunbar was an all-black Dunbar was all-black. Uh, went from 8th to the 12th grade. What was the typical day like at GLASS? And did you participate in any extracurricular activities? I don't I don't know if uh, there was a purely typical day. Each day was fraught with its own challenges and frustrations. I mean, the first year, it would be nothing for me to come back from lunch. And if I wasn't careful, I'd sit in the seat, there might be a tack in there. And so, you know, you had to be vigilant about what was going on. I remember one Valentine's Day getting a Valentine's card with a cow and the cow was the face of the cow was colored in and in place of the, of the words that were actually on the card it was scratched out and said there'd be a coon on the moon in June. Um, and so those kind of harassing things took place. Um, by the time I got to my senior year, things had pretty much settled down first year that I began to make honor roll again and it wasn't because the work was too hard it was because of the, of the um, you know, emotional and social pressure and stress. Glass had traditions that we didn't have at, at Dunbar High School. For example, um, they have senior day and on senior day the seniors all dressed up like Mardi Gras or a costume party and so I dressed up as a country preacher that day went around school with a white kid who was dressed up like the devil. And so that was kind of a little joke. And they, they had a talent show and I sang on the talent show. And did you ever decide to go to a teacher or administrator about the harassment? Oh, I did. You know, there was never, never any real in your face physical confrontations or physical violence. It was all emotional and psychological. And so, Many times we just kind of sucked it up and, and dealt with it, but um, there were two or three times that I did go to an assistant principal, Ms. McIver, to tell her about some of the things that were going on. She looked at me. She had formerly been a math teacher, and, and I had some affinity for math, so she, uh, she kind of looked out for me. Now you've given us the landscape of the way the students were beginning to desegregate. Were there any non-white faculty or staff members during the time that you and Ms. Woodruff got there? Definitely staff members, if you count janitors and, uh, and, and food uh, service uh, personnel. No non-white faculty until 1970 when the schools totally integrated in the city. Lynchburg is not that big. And so I still had support from faculty and, and administration at Dunbar. Um, in fact, Dr. Pauline Whedon Maloney uh, made sure that I, I got a scholarship for a summer program through the National Science Foundation at the uh, end of my junior year. And there were, you know, a couple of white faculty and administrators that went out of their way to look out for us. There was the um, basketball coach who taught science, Jimmy Bryant, he later became uh, mayor uh, after he retired from the school system. Shirley McIver, the assistant principal, she, she looked at me, but there were no 
non-white faculty that I could that I could count on. In retrospect, looking back at your experience at Dunbar and then your experience at Glass, how do you reconcile or compare the two experiences? Um, had I not gone to Glass, I probably wouldn't know that uh, there were courses offered at Glass that we never would have taken at Dunbar. I was able to take calculus at EC Glass. I was able to take uh, creative writing at EC Glass. Of course, the labs for um, biology and chemistry were much better equipped. I got a quality education at EC Glass. Lynchburg had very high quality education, period. I think at that time, Glass was classified as one of the top four or five high schools in the South between the years of uh, 64 and 67 at Dunbar, there were several merit scholars. When I say several, I mean 15 or 20 a year. And so we got very high quality education in Lynchburg, but Glass, Glass offered more opportunities than I would have gotten at Dunbar. Did you ever feel like anyone was putting any sort of pressure on you as this pioneer? No, I, you know, my mother pretty much stayed in the background throughout the entire stay at EC Glass. My father was an activist himself. He was a membership secretary for the local NAACP. Later on, he became president of the Lynchburg branch. He and uh, my lifelong mentor, uh, Dr. Virgil Wood, became friends after Dr. Wood came to Lynchburg to uh, Pastor Diamond Hill Baptist Church. I think that uh, people had seen early in me something that I, I didn't see in myself, the, you know, some leadership quality. And, you know, other than encouraging me to be a, a leader, there was no pressure. I probably put pressure on myself by making the decision to also participate at the street level, so to speak, in the civil rights movement. I, I, I was uh, one of the student leaders in many of the demonstrations that took place and, and the desegregation efforts in public venues. I ended up going to jail in Danville for civil rights demonstrations. I was suspended from school at Glass for leading a demonstration here in the city. I was part of the group that helped to desegregate the two white movie theaters, the uh, local S&W cafeteria. I was very much an activist as well as a school desegregator. My father took me to the March on Washington, made sure that I got that kind of exposure. What was it like being jailed in Danville? Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Well, I was, I was 16 years old, um, and they put us on a work farm, but they couldn't make me work because I was too young. And so I was, I was there for roughly about a week. My father and, and, uh, and Dr. Virgil Wood um, had to come and, and, and finally bail us out. I was the youngest person in there. Uh, I was in summer school with this National Science Foundation scholarship at Virginia Union, and had heard some of the college students that were there for their summer school talking about going to Danville on a bus, and so I wanted to go. So 
it was a bunch of college students and me. We played cards and they had to work during the day and I had to sit in the, it was kind of like a dorm-like environment and just wait for them to come back to the, to the dorm. In the next segment, we're going to hear about your education and path to your career as a professor. Did you ever think that you would be an educator? I started out wanting to be a math teacher, so yeah, I guess kind of in the back of my mind, I have a kind of a, an indirect path to being a classroom educator. I, I saw myself over the past 50 years or so more as a community educator. I, I was uh, 50 years as a pastor involved in a lot of different projects with a nonprofit that we had. And so did not initially envision myself as a classroom educator. But as I, as I got older and saw some of the challenges, I decided that it was time for me to further my education. And then as I started that process, I began to have a, a vision of me being a college professor as kind of my retirement plan. We've been talking to Dr. Owen Cardwell about his experience desegregating E.C. Glass High School in Lynchburg, Virginia. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to hear more about his path to becoming an educator. I'm Derek Alridge and I'm the director of the Teachers in the Movement Project. I grew up in a family of teachers. My mother was a first grade teacher. I remember very vividly uh, going to class with her and helping her get the class ready for the beginning of a school year. Uh, she was very excited. My brother and I very, were very excited in helping her. So that had a major influence on me, just seeing the excitement that she had about being a teacher. If you also had a teacher during or just after the Civil Rights Movement they made a difference in your life, we would love to talk to you. Get in touch at teachersinthemovement.com and click on the Contact Us button. Can you tell us about your experience at Hampton Institute and what that was like? Oh, I had many forays <laughs> into fits and starts of uh, completing my education. When I graduated from E.C. Glass, I had scholarship offers to um, a half dozen or so different schools, like Northeastern uh, University that at that time was beginning to heavily recruit um, African-American students. But I had had enough of white folks. I'm just being you know, up front. And uh, so I went to Hampton. And um, I don't know that I had worked through at that time all of the emotional and psychological things that I had, had to deal with at Glass. I just, I just knew that I wanted to have a black college experience. This was also during the Vietnam War. And there was a lot of uncertainty in the country African-American men were disproportionately being sent to the front line in Vietnam. Conscription was still a factor at that time. But by the time I had ended my sophomore year at, uh, at Hampton, I just didn't know what I wanted to do. I had messed up a little bit, uh, pledged a fraternity and wasn't going to class and just had all kinds of stuff going on. And so I, I made the decision to, to, uh, to drop out, knowing that I was exposing myself to the draft 
And ultimately, I did receive the draft notice, but but rather than to, to subject myself to decisions being made for me, I decided to go ahead and volunteer because then that left more options open for me. Um, because of that, I ended up being a clerk, so to speak, so I knew I wasn't going to be on the front line. <laughs> but I ended up going to Korea for a year and got out of the military and, of course, had the GI Bill available to me. I went to uh, Lynchburg College for a semester, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I dropped out of that and I had a couple of more forays into uh, education until I used up my, my GI benefits. And finally, I had a call in my life to be a pastor. And so I started focusing on those kinds of things. And, and it was there that I made a decision to really finish my education. Started a doctoral program at, at Boston College in social justice. And I was one of the oldest students in the class. Uh, I was in my early 30s. And because it was a social justice program, I was kind of like the class expert and really didn't want to do that. And so I dropped out of the doctoral program. Did a lot of dropping out in my... <laughs> and, and just kind of stumbled around for a while until my friend, Dr. Virgil Wood, was working on uh, creating a Martin Luther King specialty program at the doctoral level at Union Institute and University. And he was sharing with me his plans to do that. I didn't enroll in the inaugural class, but in the second class, it was the best decision that I could have made. Union helped me to, to understand that I had been on this journey all along from, from desegregating the schools to being a you know, civil rights youth leader. And so my specialization was in Martin Luther King studies. My concentration was in uh, creative and ethical leadership. And all of that just kind of came together and, and seemed like the, the arena that, that I could really continue the work that had been placed in my heart and that I had started as a young person. You say you had many fits and starts in finishing your higher education, um, but now you are a university professor. What do you think young people can and should take and learn from, from your past? I think that if I had understood more about my strengths, and that, you know, you're going to hear me talk a lot about strength-based education. If I had understood a lot more about my strengths, if, if people had helped me with that, I might have been more focused in where I wanted to go and more intentional about that. Somebody that's struggling with, you know, what do I want to do? What's my purpose? How, you know, how do I get there? I use several frameworks now, the heroic journey, integral theory, theory U, Jahari window, Gallup strength finder assessment to kind of help people to process that. And, and I distinguish between development, education, and learning. Learning is not a destination. Education very often is a destination. Development are benchmark, but learning ought to be a lifelong aspiration and a lifelong experience. And so I think we need all three to help people to make those kind of decisions. And, and ultimately, they might decide that a classroom education is not the best thing for them. 
As a student and activist yourself, how do you think educators can further incorporate activism in the classroom and encourage their students to be activists? Education in and of itself is an activist activity. That's number one. Number two, I, I think what I said earlier about making a distinction between development, uh, education, and learning is, is critical. Now, other strategies. Brazil has figured out a way of teaching kids in the Amazon, in a sparse population, and so they use the technology. Sometimes there are only a dozen or so kids in the entire school because of the sparse population. They have a teacher who serves as a class resource, not as the expert, so to speak. And they have course experts that are in, you know, highly populated areas, and they meet the kids by way of video. And the focus is on content mastery and not simply moving people along in a block fashion, everybody moving along at the same thing. And the uh, developer of Khan Academy says a lot about this. Sooner or later, if you keep having these holes in what you're learning, uh, sooner or later, the whole thing kind of falls down on you. And that's what we're seeing with many kids. There was a sixth grade math teacher in California who decided to use Khan Academy and to take all of his kids back to kindergarten, so to speak, and to build from there. When they took the um, whatever California's standardized test is, those kids scored something like 70, 80% better than they had, than any of those classes had scored in the past. So, so there's something to be said about content mastery. There's something to be said about strength-based learning. There's something to be said about individualized education plans. And what we need to do is to move the teacher from being the one who stands in front of the room as the expert, and that teacher becomes the class resource connecting kids and allowing kids to teach each other. What's wrong with that? That's not cheating. We cannot continue this block movement of students and with the COVID crisis that we're facing with uh, hybrid learning and distance learning, many African-American students are being disadvantaged, particularly if they intersect with poverty. This so-called achievement gap, I, I, I really hate that term because it has nothing to do with the capability of the students a performance gap, yes, but but the performance has a lot to do with, with all kind of other factors. No access to internet, even if they don't intersect with poverty, if they've got working parents, you know, who's going to be there to monitor? We're facing a crisis that is only going to get worse until we really figure out, you know, how to do this distance learning. But... It's also serving as an opportunity to redirect how we do education. We have the capacity with the technology that we have to provide individual education plans for every single student. We have the capacity to do it around strength-based learning. We have the capacity to create opportunities for lifelong learning uh, strategies. We have the capacity to have on-demand learning with things like the MOOC courses, Coursera, edX, all those kind of things. And 
in the in the long run, it places education back in the hands of the community and not put all the responsibility on a public school system that is like trying to turn an ocean liner on a dime. So that's an Encyclopedia Britannica answer to a Reader's Digest question. But yeah, we have an opportunity to redirect how we do education. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Cardwell. The first interview with you is so rich. I did not know that we would get a part two that was even more robust. And every time I sit down with you, I further adopt myself as one of your mentees. So I'm officially adopted. Oh, I'm privileged if I get if I can add your name to the list. I'm privileged. <laughs> okay, well, you add it. I'm Dr. Danielle Wingfield-Smith, and I'm joined today by Kristen McCullum. This has been Teachers in the Movement. Thank you so much to Dr. Owen Cardwell for joining us today. For more information and to view the interviews, go to teachersinthemovement.com. The Teachers in the Movement podcast is a member of the Virginia Audio Collective. The Teachers in the Movement podcast is produced by Mary Garner McGee, and our theme music is Summer Night by Vanilla. You can find their music at vanillabeats.bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening.